And welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host, Ian Hamilton. And I am his familiar, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after or during their first and only season. Isn't that right, John? That is right. We have sucked the blood. We have drained everything that we can out of these shows. And we have absorbed what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Uh, today we are talking about Blade, the series. Uh, before Disney+, Plus, before the MCU, there was only Blade. And this was actually a listener recommendation, so thank you, Daniel, for the suggestion here. Remember, we will prioritize any listener recommendation, so please reach out. We are not only thirsty for blood, but for your approval. But before we get into the Daywalkers romp around Detroit... Ian, what have you been watching? I watched two of the three Coen Brothers movies I had never seen. Oh. Hudsucker Proxy and The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, starring Billy Bob Bob Thornton. Thornton. Mm -hmm. And uh, so me and Robbie watched them together. They could not be more opposite movies. (laughs) Hudsucker Proxy, I think, is the goofiest movie they've made. Goofier than Raising Arizona. Like, well, you know they were producers on an extremely goofy movie, right? <laughs> were they the ones that added the Leaning Tower of Cheesa? They did. No, that's the first goofy movie. Get your head out of your butt. The second one's where they skateboard. Ah, uh, dude, I was literally going to ask which one was the one where they skateboard. Um, I think I get a goofy movie mixed up with Brave Little Toaster a little bit too. Mm. Anyway. The Man Who Wasn't There was like slower, much more nihilistic and thoughtful. Hudsucker Proxy is like, I'm Tim Robbins and I'm a goofball and I shouldn't be president of this company. And Paul Newman's like, I got a cigar in my mouth and I'm Paul Newman. And there's like a lot of quick shots, a lot of big set pieces. The first half was really fun. The second half was like, let's get this over with until there. there's a fun thing kind of near the end. But for the most part, there was no surprises uh, Mm. once the surprise happens now the man who wasn't there i highly recommend not only did we appreciate the pacing more and billy bob thornton's character probably but if you are a sopranos fan and you just want to see more tony soprano james gandolfini plays a character in this movie with plenty of screen time that is essentially a cut and paste replica of tony soprano like he's doing the voice He's doing the breathing. He's doing the hand gestures. Is he doing the crappy son, too? Hey, AJ has a tough... No, he doesn't. Okay, I can't (laughs) defend AJ. But it was amazing to me how cut and paste that character was. Um, But it was really fun. It was surprising. It was longer than Hudsucker Proxy, but it didn't feel longer, even though the tempo was slower, which was interesting. I really liked them both, but I really only really liked one of them. <laughs> so what's the one that's left on the plate? 
Um, Intolerable Cruelty, I've never seen. You have not seen Intolerable Cruelty? I have. I don't remember any of it, but it was there. Yeah. You probably saw it with your parents in the theater. Oh, yeah. In like fifth grade. Yeah. Way too young. That is so your MO. Uh, John, what have you been watching? Speaking a little bit of the Coen brothers, but kind of slant ways, I saw Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inishirin, which I absolutely adored. Oh, right. Yes. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson reunited at last after In Bruges. It's about two friends who one of them just decides he doesn't want to be friends anymore. And that's the starting off point. And then it just goes from there. I absolutely adored it. It was stupid funny. It was blisteringly sad. It was just really exceptional stuff. I love Martin McDonough. Do you know Martin McDonough's stuff? Blisteringly sad, says John Polking of One and Done TV. I'm trying for to go for Peter Travers's uh, Rolling Stone quotes. That's the that's the ultimate goal. I think the only thing I'm really familiar with is three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Correct. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, which I love that movie, and I'm kind of surprised this new one isn't getting more attention because of how big that movie was. It will. It'll get, I think, a decent amount of nominations. I mean, Colin Farrell, and I really like Colin Farrell. This is the best performance of his career. Brendan Gleeson is great in it, too. It's shot beautifully on this, like, takes place on this island just off the coast of Ireland. And the script is very funny. It's very dark. It's surprisingly gory. It's amazing. I just really am so enamored with The Banshees of Inishirin. I love that it starts out with a friend breaking up with another friend and somehow becomes gory. I, I'm looking forward to it. And when you eventually see it, you're going to look at the screen and you're going to be like, oh, man, it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime. In 2006, Blade the series sucked the blood out of audiences as the first hour-long drama commissioned by Spike TV... The Network for Men. Unfortunately, it sucked a little too much as it was canceled after only 12 episodes. Spike TV, dude. I think two men. This is finally our time to shine. I did want to ask you, what uh, shows do you associate with Spike TV? Weirdly enough, like most extreme elimination challenge, MXC. Yes. That's the one that I think I associate most with Spike TV. What about you? Definitely MXC, but there was also this year where they released some like adult animated shows where they remade Ren and Stimpy, but I think it was called Ren and Stimpy After Dark or Adult Playtime or something. Where Ren and Stimpy with penises, because it's the network for men. Yeah, they also had this Pam Anderson show called Stripperella, which was, I think Stan Lee was actually involved with. Yeah. Oh, and Kelsey Grammer did a promo where he goes, Spike TV, the network for men. And uh, I'll always remember that. Sounds like Kelsey Grammer's MO. Ian, (laughs) did you have much familiarity with uh, Blade before watching the show? I know of him. I know Wesley Snipes looks cool when he plays him. I have actually never seen any of the Blade movies. And only through researching this show did I learn that it, He didn't even have his own comic book. Oh, he didn't? I didn't know that. He was like a third tier character that showed up in other comic books in the 70s. 
that the writer of those movies, who was also the creator of this series, David S. Goyer, um, really said championed the modern comic book movie because it took the subject matter really seriously, uh, really dramatically. They were R-rated comic book movies, which was unheard of at the time. Um, they didn't wink at anything. They didn't try to look like a comic or a cartoon. They made it into a movie, which was really important. And it kind of showed it wasn't just Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or whatever that could hold the audiences. You could also take a third tier character from Marvel and make a movie out of him. And that's when they were like, oh, maybe we should look at everything else we own. Yeah, it's interesting the timing of Blade 2 because we sort of think about Spider-Man in 2001, I believe. Yeah, it was 2001 as the sort of dawn of the modern superhero mm -hmm. movie. Maybe you think about X-Men a year before that. That could be the starting point. Blade was 1998. Blade 2 was 2002. Uh, Blade Trinity, which I have not seen. I've seen the other two, though, but I've heard it's the worst one. That came out in 2004. This is 2006, which it's essentially, as far as I know, everything that happens in Blade the series still keeps everything that happened in the first three movies as canon, right? Uh, yeah, David Goyer said that it takes place in the same continuity as the films, though it is designed as a new jumping off point for people that aren't familiar with it. Um, and he liked it as a TV show because he said it expanded on the mythology, both Blades and the vampire mythology. And because there wasn't really a comic book series, at least well known, maybe after the movies they made one. But mm -hmm. he could essentially just expand this whole vampire cult thing out as far as he wanted to. One thing about the season as a whole is it was one long storyline almost like a mini series if it didn't have a cliffhanger at the end but <laughs> i thought that was kind of interesting do you think that's weird for that time in in tv absolutely especially when you're dealing with like established ip you'd think oh this is definitely just going to be like the starting point for something that is going to expand later you don't necessarily think and i mean again it did have a cliffhanger but to have a relatively self-contained story, I think, is very revolutionary for the time. Maybe I'm overusing that word, though. Yeah, maybe, because uh, <laughs> actually another interesting thing I wanted to point out was this was made in 2006, and I was wondering why this wasn't a bigger hit. It's vampires, and there is sex and sexy vampires, and when they're sucking each other's blood, they're also putting each other's fingers in each other's mouths or something weird <laughs> or tying each other up with like red velvet ropes. Um, but this was actually two years before Twilight, which came out in 2008, and then True Blood 2008, Vampire Diaries 2009. So I felt like this was right before this stuff started to take off. Dare I say revolutionary? Dare I? No, just atypical. Well, it's an atypical show with some atypical highlights. 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 All right, John, we would be remiss to not talk about the main character of this show first, right? Blade the series. Who gets the most screen time, the most story arc committed to them? 
Krista Star. Exactly. <laughs> Blade is not the main character in his own show. No, especially the first maybe five episodes. Krista is an Iraq war veteran who comes home only to find out her brother was murdered. And then she finds out it was by vampires. Whoa. And then she finds those vampires and is like, I'm going to kill you. But instead, they make her into a vampire. And at some point before that, she had met Blade. So then when she becomes a vampire, she's like his spy into these vampire organizations. There's uh, 12 leading vampire houses. The one that the TV show focuses on is the House of Cathan. Krista Starr is played by the actor Jill Wagner, and she looks so familiar to me. And it took me a bit to realize what it was from. And I realized that it seems like Jill Wagner has made a Hallmark Christmas movie every year since Blade the series came out. No, is that true? Ian, let me go through some of her most recent credits. We've got A Merry Christmas Wish, A Christmas Miracle for Daisy, The Angel Tree, Hearts of Winter, Christmas in Evergreen. Is that a Game of Thrones season, the Hearts of Winter? Oh, yeah. It's uh, the fourth spinoff that they haven't done yet. But Jill Wagner has just like been a fixture on Hallmark. And it's a bit of a departure if you see her as this butt-kicking veteran, conflicted morally, emotionally, tied between different loyalties. And apparently she's just like kissing dudes under the mistletoe for the last like 10 years. I think she has a cop show in there too. Mm. And looking at her career on IMDb reminded me of I think it's season five of BoJack Horseman when he is on a TV show and his co-star just goes from canceled cop show to canceled cop show. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's her. Like, she works a lot. She's got this generic type of character that she plays and any company will hire her to play that character. Yeah. And she she plays it well. Maybe. I guess we haven't really watched that. We've just seen her in Blade. But she is torn between Blade and Marcus Van Skyver, who is the highest ranking, what they call turn blood. So he was not born a vampire. He was eventually turned by vampires in this uh, House of Catan. Uh, He's British. Uh, He has turned Krista, which means he's got this eternal bond with her. He starts off as sort of your basic villain, and he is ultimately positioned as this sort of big bad. But throughout the series, he also has a lot of backstory where you are supposed to sympathize with him. They give you some insight into when he used to be a human being and when he was turned into a vampire by some sort of weird from the show. Is I, I don't know, generic Native American blood ritual or something borderline offensive and probably not even borderline what was strange to me is that in his backstory one of the pure blood vampires that's a bad guy in the present was a gangster that was bullying him a hundred years ago but that's not what turned him into a vampire it was just something completely different (laughs) 
The irrelevant bullying is my favorite type of bullying. He and Krista have this connection because if you bite someone and you turn them into a vampire, then you kill them and then part of you is in them. And one thing he says to her is, you can kill me, but you can never kill the part of me that's inside of you. Boom, boom. So I don't know. I don't know. There's like a connection and they sleep together once and sometimes she hates him. He's also super rich and like controls not just like the Detroit vamp scene, as we will refer to it on this podcast. I don't think they actually call it that in the show. But, you know, the the vamp culture. That's yeah. my vampire culture shorthand. He's the Detroit vampire kingpin, if oh, you will. There we go. There we go. Well, now that we've talked about the main characters, I guess we can talk about Blade. So, Sticky Fingers. Best actor name ever. Well, I think Sticky Fingers is his rap name, mm-hmm. whereas in the show he's credited as Kirk Sticky Jones. That's right. So his story actually of getting this part was kind of interesting. I listened to an interview where he talked about he was on a cop show, or no, maybe it was an army show that was also one and done. But even though that show had been canceled, the network it was on was going to fly the whole cast to this like five-star resort getaway as like a thank you or something. This sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. The horror movie is he passed that up and instead auditioned for Blade for months and months and months until he got the character. Um He said he did 85% of his own stunts, which I was kind of impressed by. Hmm. And he did a lot of fight choreography. Like he talked about real fight choreography. Like we didn't just choreograph it for TV. I'd say, no, tell me, how would you actually break someone's neck? And then I'd learn how to break someone's neck. And then we'd choreograph that for TV. So he was all in. He was all in on this part. So Blade is what they call a daywalker, which means he's a vampire that can actually be in the sun. Uh, He is a half vampire, half human, which gives him all basically all the strengths of a vampire without as many of the weaknesses. And what he chooses to do with that is hunt down the vampires. And his big target for the season is the House of Cthan and Marcus Van Skyver. Although I've got to say, they started calling him Van Skyver the last couple episodes, and they yeah. always called him Marcus before that. So for a little while, I had no idea who they were talking about. I just always thought of him as my buddy Mark, you know, the one who I played hopscotch with in second grade. He's got that kind of relatability, that sort of slicked back, blonde hair, perfectly tailored suit, British accent relatability. I wouldn't say slicked back hair. I'd say he has more of the executive type of haircut. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Like if it was taking place now, he would definitely be wearing one of those vests that our buddy Chris Workman likes to wear a lot. Oh, yeah, he'd be vested up big mm-hmm. time. He's ha- He's got a vested interest. I'm glad nice. I got that in. Thank you. Very nice. Uh, we should talk about the side characters really quickly. We've got Shen, who is Blade's guy at the computer. Um, he does all the science stuff. He develops this serum for Blade. I like that everyone else says serum, but he goes serum. Did you notice that? I did not notice that, but Blade's serum is the, or serum is the thing that 
Blade injects into himself so that he doesn't have to feed on human beings and drink blood like every other vampire needs to. And he gets Krista into the serum so that <laughs> uh, she can remain a spy and not succumb to, they don't call it the the bloodlust. What do they call it? The thirst. And the thirst is what drives any newborn vampire insane with thirst for blood, which then turns them into, I don't know, human haters. I don't, I guess they have a reckless abandon for human life because they are essentially food. Correct? Yes, that is correct. And I will clarify that when Ian says newborn vampires, he does not mean itty bitty baby vampires. He means the recently turned vampires, the ones that have been reborn. Right. Imagine you yourself sitting there listening to this podcast. You're 18 to 49 years old. You're at work driving or on the train maybe playing video games, you're your own age, and then somebody bites your neck, uh, fully drains your blood, I believe. I, I think if you want to change someone into a vampire, you have to completely drain all of their blood. No, in order to kill them fully, you need to fully drain their blood. In order to turn them, it just needs to be a little bit of blood. Uh, That's but- correct. It, it, it's correct because how does Marcus turn Krista? He takes a little bit of blood from a syringe from his neck and he shoots it into her stomach. That's how he turns her. Well, that's only the, the first part of turning is the bloodening. And then the second part <laughs> is the actual murder so yeah. that they can then wake up as a newborn vampire. Um, reborn vampires stop saying newborn i feel like they say newborn do they do they yes but when we are in an audio medium if you hear newborn you think like nursery i just need that to be clear that these are not that's on you (laughs) what i'm just saying they're in their crib (laughs) it's really stop confusing them it's a cage it's not a crib (laughs) <laughs> we weren't talking about cages. We were talking about Shen and how he's the computer guy and how he does all the science stuff. But he also is kind of ripped and, you know, kicks some butt on his own right. Uh, he also gets his left hand broken and all of his nails on his left hand ripped out. And the rest of the episode, it doesn't really seem to affect him. He's just grabbing stuff and walking around like he doesn't have a really messed up left hand. Yeah, I think that would be my entire personality if that happened to me. I agree. I mean, I stub my toe and everyone's got to hear about it. But even though Shen is the left, his left hand is messed up, he is essentially Blade's right hand. Ian, who is Marcus's right hand? That would be Chase, who is a blonde vampire that is, I don't think she's married to Marcus, but maybe she's with Marcus. Oh, yeah. Regard. In Um, a biblical sense. I swear she did not have an Australian accent until episode three. I swear. I wrote down in my notes, wait, she's Australian? She navigates a few different accents per her various disguises in the crowds that she hangs with. I suppose that's true. Uh, The actress is Australian. So I'm like, we got a British vampire hooking up with an Australian vampire. I'm like, where's the Canadian in all this? 
She hates Krista, though, because she is now the object of desire for Marcus. And her and Krista, despite being assigned to go on many missions together, tend to butt heads. Chase is suspicious of Krista's intent because Krista's always disappearing and stuff. And she's like, where were you? And she's like, don't worry about it. When you never see somebody sucking blood, don't assume that they've been sucking blood without you. I think that's a very, very important thing. And all of you, please don't suck blood without us during this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. As you might have guessed, there is a lot of science that is built into Blade the series. And luckily for us, Ian, our buddy Ian Hamilton, finally got his PhD. He is a doctor. Congratulations, Ian. I'm a doctor in vampiric sciences from the University of American Samoa. Didn't you get a minor there too? Yes, I got a minor in bloodletting. Oh, that's good. I'm glad uh, they gave you that degree, even though you got that D in hemoglobology. You, I just paid them off. It's fine. I still, look, just because I didn't do, turn my homework in on time doesn't mean I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. That's true. Yeah. You do have the confidence of a doctor. So congratulations. I thought this would be a good time to ask some of these burning questions. Um, Dr. Ian, are you ready to answer some questions I have about the vampirology of Blade the series? I have spent literal minutes studying the biology and the anatomy of vampires and everything that makes them the way they are. I can completely 100% explain everything that you need to know in full detail without glossing over anything. So this garlic... Silver, sunlight, we know, we all know, that's the stuff you use to hunt down the vamps. Ian, what does this stuff actually do to vampires, according to Blade the series? Well, you see, it sends any vampire into anaphylactic shock, and it makes their skin and their blood evaporate. Ooh. That's right. It's just like if someone's allergic to a peanut and they eat it, same thing. Yeah, they explode into sparks. And their skeletons remain for instances before they also disintegrate. Exploding into sparks is a little... Reductive? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Is that what you're trying to say? It's a little reductive, John, because actually it's more like their skin like sizzles and then they go from being human to being a fire and then blackened soot and then a skeleton for... About a second. Yeah. Until they're completely ash. And that's all because of that garlic, silver, and and sunlight. Ian, we also got a taste of what are called ADEs, after-death experiences. Can you explain those in the words of Blade the series? 
John, an ADE is a simple trigger of genetic memories of your sponsor, uh, the sponsor being the person that turns you, and your own synapses that rebuild your cognitive functions. Just like Marcus tells Krista, his life flows through her. Every vampire shares an eternal link with the one who turned them. That's the gift of the after-death experience. Um, Also, there is some kind of psychic ability in this where if you bathe in blood, you know where the vampire you turned is in his physical location. Now, Ian, I have bathed in many, many tubs of blood, and I've never had these kinds of visions. Am I doing this wrong, or am I just not a vampire? Well, John, you've probably only been submerged for about 10 minutes instead of Krista's record holding five hours and 27 minutes. Oh, where she was using that sort of telekinetic powers to find a corrupt cop that she had accidentally turned when she was feasting on him. Well, in her defense, she was trying to eat him. Yeah, that's what I always say. John, let me just explain the bloodbath to you in more detail in its biological terms. When you kill, energy is released, which takes you into an after-death experience. Now, because your new metabolic chemistry, your senses have been returned, calibrated even higher. Very scientific. Nothing you could learn at Radio Shack. You'd need a doctorate to know that. Mm-hmm. What we do here is simply turn up the dial even more. If we can turn it high enough, you can pick up the energy of your first kill and you can find him no matter where he is. Now, Ian, you say him. Are you excluding women? Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay, Ian, I've got one final question for you. So vampires in Blade the Series, they get hurt. Uh, They don't die, but they've gotten impaled. They get burned. They get shot up real good. How are they able to heal faster? Well, John, if you have recently fed, then your blood has more healing properties. So if your buddy is hurt, all you have to do is have a quick little meal, then cut yourself, let's say, in the arm or the shin, or the elbow, back of the neck, cut your shoulder. Don't slit your throat, though. That does seem to kill vampires. Just rub a little bit of blood onto their wound, and bam, they'll be healed up right quick in several hours, even if it's a gaping, gaping wound. But Ian, like, what about that makes that possible? The more hemoglobin your blood metabolizes, the faster you regenerate damaged tissue. The curative properties of his blood should be especially potent. He just fed, says Marcus. So, Ian, okay, I know I said final question, but I've got one more final question. What is hemoglobin? Hemoglobin is stuff in the blood that I imagine as circular and kind of like a bubble. Cool. Thank you so much, Dr. Ian, for walking us through the science of Blade the series. I guess we should probably get back to some of the other highlights. Well, some of the other highlights, I really wanted to talk about Randy Quaid really quick, John. As quick as he appeared in the show, let's go for it. He was in the pilot as this vampire expert scientist that Krista goes to meet. And would you be surprised to know, John, that he is hiding out in his house, paranoid that a secret society is going to kill him? 
I have seen some of his online videos. Uh, so no, I'm not surprised that he could play that part. <laughs> Dude, what's crazy about that is this is one of his last roles. Wow. Like, that he played in a major thing. And uh, it really felt like art imitates life here. There is a line where he goes, they're everywhere. The police, the government, everywhere. And you're like, yeah, Randy, we, we know. We I know, didn't but. know this was a documentary. Let's let's get you back to your hole and let's not deal with this anymore. One of the big discoveries that Randy Quaid's character has, though, is this idea that the ash, you know, the things that you the vampires burn up into uh, can be used as a drug and is like a street drug in Detroit where the story takes place. It's not that normal junk, John. It hooks you in deep. Bone oh, yeah. deep. So deep. So, so, so deep. So there's this like illegal black market ash drug trade going on, which I guess gives people incentive to kill vampires so that they can sell their ash so that junkies will buy it and snort it. Yeah, it also kind of gives the familiars something to do. The familiars are the people that follow the vampires and basically do their bidding in order to hopefully get turned one day into vampires. So, you know, it, you know, they just peddle some powder and hope for the best. John, this was also our second show in a month that featured somebody getting murdered with an exploding crossbow. Oh, that's fun. Happy exploding crossbow month, Ian. Happy exploding crossbow month to all of you out there. Yeah, this is a really gnarly show when it wants to be. Some of the effects are very, you know, sci-fi birdemic-y, but some of the stuff gets real bloody. Like, the show opens with Blade slitting a Russian soldier's throat wide open. We also get, like, a jaw that's ripped off. Uh, what else have we got? Oh, yeah. Um, well, Chase, at one point, gets blown up by a bomb and her entire body is charred. I like to call that the Stormfront effect, if anyone's watched The Boys. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Let me see. Uh, oh, Blade rips out somebody's eye in the last episode. And Krista is a spy for Blade, but she goes on a mission where she's supposed to kill him. So in order to make it look like she's not a spy, she has Blade cut off her arm and like gouge out her eye or something so that she returns mission successful yet very harmed. Yeah. There is a lot of harm that is done to the vampires without them actually dying. And that was one of the things that I did appreciate was that yes, they couldn't die easily, but they did feel pain at the same time. So it wasn't like, they were bulletproof or anything like, no, they felt the bullets. It just didn't kill them in the way that it normally would. Well, but there was some inconsistencies there where yeah. sometimes it's like touch a little bit of silver and they're pulverized. And then at one point, Krista got shot with a silver bullet, but she just pulls it out of her shoulder and like her shoulders messed up, but she's fine because Chris is awesome, man. Right. Yeah. She's the main character of Blade the series. She's the titular <laughs> Krista of Blade the series. And so she can't die. I understand that. But okay. Or there was one woman that was killed when Krista bashes a mirror onto her. 
Oh, yeah. And then the shard of glass sticks into her chest and she starts to smolder and she's confused. And she's like, Chris is like, don't you know, mirrors are backed by silver. And then the woman's like, what? Ah!" And then gets pulverized. And uh, there's a disconnect between who gets to get murdered instantly and who gets to wait around a minute. When you have a punchline to throw in there, that's when you get to hang out for a little bit before you burn up completely from the inside out. Oh, yeah. There were some good punchlines in there, John. Like one of them was at the end, Krista throws Chase uh, down a flight of stairs, or like 10 flights of stairs, actually. But it starts with Chase going, I'm only doing all this so that I can go higher in the vampire ranks, something like that. And Chris is like, no, Chase, you're going down. And then she throws her. And uh, every episode had like two of those. And almost none of them were by the titular Blade. It was always from somebody else. I feel like he had one or two in there, but yeah, I, yeah, I know what sometimes. you mean. I know what you yeah. mean. So Krista and Chase's fight sequence at the end brings to mind one of the things that there's just a lot of double crossing in this show, a lot of mixed alliances, right? It's like Blade hates vampires, so he kills their familiars, but he's doing all this to save people. So mm-hmm. people are like, oh, you're doing good and you're killing vampires. And then other people are like, wait, you're just killing everybody. Yeah. Blade does not uh, deal with fools lightly. No. And if those fools are vampires, great. If they're human and they're just kind of in his way, that's fine too. There is no real rhyme or reason to any of his killing. But we've also got Krista, who's aligned with Blade ultimately, but she also ends up getting into a romantic entanglement with Marcus. And we don't know if Chase is really with Marcus or with these other elders at the House of Cathan. The Purebloods. We haven't we haven't really talked about the Purebloods much. No, the um, Purebloods are the vampires that were born vampires, essentially. So they were not turned and Marcus is one who was turned. And one of the big sort of arcs of the show is Marcus's aim to kill all the purebloods with this uh, virus that's called like Aurora, right? Right. It's the Aurora vaccine, John. And you see, uh, Marcus is making a pureblood poison, an emerging agent that is DNA based and specifically engineered to attack the pureblood genome, which they uh, develop in a pregnant woman's womb. Uh, And she's very surprised to know she does not have a baby. She just has a bunch of blue goo inside of her that is supposed to make this pureblood vampire gas, nerve tonic gas. I have a doctorate. Yes, you do. Why use a pregnant woman, John? Because the womb is the perfect nutrient-rich incubator. It also ensures biological immunity for anyone other than the intended target. It only kills purebloods. Why? Don't ask me. But that means (laughs) that when Marcus gets his big moment where he's trying to kill all the purebloods and he's in the same room as them, he'll survive and they'll all melt into black goo as sometimes that happens. Yeah, think about like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but like with way more melties. 
And John, the last highlight I wanted to bring up was all of the big bads that were killed surprisingly quickly. Like yeah. one of our favorite actors, Bokeem Woodbine. Of course. Incredible. Uh, Fargo season two is what I really know him from. But for all I know, he's most popular for his role in the Halo series. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many people watch that, but maybe a lot of nerds did. Um, but he shows up as this guy from Blade's past that Blade had turned into a vampire, but he's part of the Brotherhood, which is a group of guys that have been dismissed by all other vampire societies, and now they're out to kill Blade as revenge for having turned them in the first place, I guess. And Mm -hmm. all of his buddies die, but he gets away. And also, it kind of seems like he's a daywalker or he's also immune to silver for some reason. And I really thought he was going to be the Moriarty to his Sherlock Holmes. Because he does disappear for like two episodes and then he like comes back and just starts murdering everyone in Blade's life. And that was kind of the direction that I thought the show was going to sort of go in, which was this idea of like, yeah, we'll plant these seeds throughout the episode and eventually they'll pay off a few times later. I thought they would do more of that sort of bad guy of the week stuff but even the Bokeem Woodbine like sort of climax episode after he disappears for a couple episodes and he starts like trying to kill Blade's mom and dad and all these other people in Blade's life and you're like why didn't you just do this when he was originally introduced why did you wait a little bit and then come back to this when we've been dealing with all of this other House of Cathan stuff through the last like three episodes well, it's because for two or three episodes, they're exploring Blade's past, John. And for, oh, yeah. So Bokeem Woodbine is tied into that. But why? Okay. The way he dies is sweet because yeah. Blade hasn't seen his father in years. And in the middle of this big fight with Bokeem Woodbine, uh, his dad comes out of nowhere, stabs the silver sword through Blade into Bokeem Woodbine vaporizing him so now he is not immune to silver all of a sudden so don't don't ask me to explain that and then but you're a doctor i'm not a blacksmith or a silversmith that is a good metallurgy is not my specialty (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so that was just weird to me that they set him up like he was going to be this continuing character and then he didn't come back same with uh, one of the purebloods is like this 12-year-old girl who's really hundreds of years old, but that's the age she's stuck at. And then she has like this big henchman who presumably is also a pureblood. And he's also in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Thank you. And they died in episode 12. And there was just a lot of stuff that I thought would be continuing into further seasons that was cut out at the legs quicker than I thought. Speaking of which... Let's cut off this conversation right now so that we can take a quick commercial break and get to some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the bloodiest, it could be the bladiest. Whatever they may be, we have decided to give these shows their just desserts. 
and desserts, in this case, is blood. Each of us get two Dunzo Awards to give out to the categories of our choosing. Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award goes to Marcus, and it is the Nazi Award. Oh. And it goes to him because uh, life does not seem to have any value to him, and he is completely corrupt and a psycho. I mean, I get that vampires wouldn't care too much about human life because we're like veal to them. Like I get that, but the whole series Marcus is experimenting on and murdering other vampires in order to develop this vaccine, probably the Ash drug trade. I don't even know if he was involved in that, but let's just say he was, um, (laughs) life has zero value to him. Even I don't understand why, If you have immortality, even if you can't go out during the day, you're just murdering everyone all the time. And like, what? You don't have sun envy? You think he has sun envy? Yeah, I think he has sun envy. Yeah. (laughs) I think if you didn't get sunlight, you'd be a little cranky. That's why winter is so sad for everyone else. Eternal eternal seasonal affective disorder. Yes, that's what Marcus has. Okay. Okay. But then we're supposed to sympathize with him because. Uh, His wife had a very bad end to her life. And it's like, okay, so that happened, but now you're going to just do it to everybody forever till the rest of time, I guess? Because he's he's quanky. He's quanky. He hasn't gotten to see a, a sunset in a long time. So therefore, he is completely forgiven from all of his atrocities. You know, I also had kind of a nihilism award, too, because if you're a vampire and you are like you can be killed, but you're immortal still. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it just be boring? Like, why would you even? I was wondering, do they even sleep? Like, do they have to get up? I think they sleep. Yeah, they sleep during the day. Okay, but like what happens if they don't sleep? It's not like they're going to die. That's true. They don't really have to do anything. You could still do some fun stuff, like when you're down and about. Like speaking of treating people like meat, remember the scene where the one guy is just like punching a vampire that's like sewn up in a body bag, and he's just like, "This is my meat." Oh my god, that's right. It's a, and speaking of meat, also there's a scene where Blades in a meat locker fighting. I don't even know if they were vampires. They might have been familiars or something. And then there was just a random tub of acid for him to throw someone into. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. amazing. You you clearly have not spent enough time in a butcher. You've been too busy getting that degree from the University of American Samoa. And also, I'm, you know, by trade, a candlestick maker. <laughs> John, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo is the Jason Biggs Award, which goes to the most boring white guy. And that will be to Detective Collins. I knew it. Ray. Oh, man. Ray. Yeah. So Detective Collins is a guy who shows up early on in the season. Is basically, he's like one step behind the bladed Krista story as he's discovering what vampires are. He's like an FBI agent who he keeps getting closer to the truth 
And his boss is like, cut it out, kid. You're getting too close to the truth. And he's like, well, I'm going to sweep up these bullets and I'm going to find these people. And then you know what? He eventually finds Blade and he does Blade one favor, which is to help find a downed airplane using his former FBI access. And then he dies. I don't know what the point of Detective Collins was. I literally wrote when he showed up in his like third straight episode, like, I hope this Detective Collins stuff pays off. And you know what? It didn't. It didn't. I don't know why he was there. He was just a guy that was it. He it felt like a D story that they used to fill out three minutes an episode. Did he give Blue Demon vibes a la Swamp Thing? He gave me such Blue Demon vibes. Except at least he had some sort of like catharsis at the end and like an emotional connection to Blade for literally no reason as Blade, as he like dies in Blade's arms. Right. I don't know. He's an FBI agent that is investigating a crime, finds this ash, gets obsessed with being like, what is going on? And then the FBI is like, hey forget about that and come back and do this other job. And he's like, no. And then he's like, Hey FBI, guess what? There's vampires. And his boss is like, Hey man, you're crazy. And then he's like, no man, you're a vampire. And then he's like, yeah, I am. So he bashes his head into the window of a car and then he finds blade and then they're working together. And then they're in this school where everyone is dead and they're all going to become vampires. And I thought it was like going to crescendo with, they basically were like, the whole town's in here. They're all going to turn. And it didn't really climax to that. Right? They didn't have the budget for a huge uh, crescendo. Yeah. But- He's dead. Girl's dead. Big guy from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's dad. Let's go home. Yep. Give it up for Jason Biggs, everybody. Ian, what is your second Dunzo Award? My second Dunzo Award is the Standalone Award, which goes to episode 11, where for some reason we finally got to the point where we should have an episode that, for the most part, is compartmentalized. We fight one bad guy. He's introduced in the beginning. He's kind of like Saw. He tortures women and, I guess, takes out their teeth or something and has a mask with teeth all over it. And we're told he's scarred and horribly disfigured. And when he takes off the mask, I was like, he's got some lines on his face. He's not that scarred. He's also pale. Right. I was like, he just needs to get out. Well, I guess he can't get out in the sun anymore. That seasonal affective disorder, man. Seriously, it makes people do some wild things. Like think of yourself as a god. That's one thing that you would do if you didn't see the sun for a while. Yeah, or like some gift to the earth from God, like some kind of living angel. I don't know what his deal was. All I know was he came and went really quickly. And for them to do that near the end of the season was such strange timing for me. I was like, maybe they just want to give Shen something to do where he's more than just guy at computer, right? Because He actually goes into the club. He deals with the women. He comes up with a plan to get go after this guy, and he beats up some people, right? Yeah, he also forms a connection with this woman who's basically being used as bait to hunt this guy 
who is capturing these women in this metal club. I was still kind of confused as to the nature of the club itself as well. But this part was very indicative of how I felt like the violence sort of transformed over the course of the show. You know what I mean? Like it started off as like some hand-to-hand stuff, you know, some cheesy sci-fi, oh, everyone's going to burn up in a plume of smoke, whatever. But then by the end, it got like disconcertingly gross and like very torture porn-y. I thought I was watching like one of the hostile movies or like you said, Saw. Yeah, we're going to be on this topic for uh, just a minute here because <laughs> so the the show starts off with Blade slitting this vampire's throat and blood just spurting everywhere. But then for like two episodes, there's very little blood and they just like sometimes they dismember people and other times they just like use a little gushing noise that's off camera and the house of Cathan, like half the time they're on a mission they're just dressed up as like black ops with like machine guns and they just go in and shoot people and i was like where is the fun vampire stuff why aren't yeah. they why aren't they ripping out each other's throats and climbing on the walls and vampire combat? And then sometimes they were only that. And between the fighting and the gore and sometimes even the sex, it was like sometimes they were puritanical and sometimes they were the movie hostile. It was like Eli Roth was a producer on this, you know? Yeah, there were a couple scenes towards the end, especially where I just like fast forwarded because I was like, I know what this is going to be. And you know what? I don't need to see somebody have their fingernails ripped out or their teeth pulled. Like, that's not what I want right now. And I know that this is coming. Bye. No, thanks. Yeah. Or even some of the fight sequences, like the hand to hand combat stuff felt decent. And some of it felt very slapped together. Well, I think that speaks to the fact that, Ian, did you know that this is the worst edited show I've ever seen? Interesting. Fun fact, especially the fight scenes. You didn't feel that, like, watching the the fight scenes in particular? Oh, no, I felt that. It was just like, with him and Bokeem Woodbine, their final fight, I was like, this is a pretty good fight. Yeah, but everything, like, before that, when you said that Sticky Fingers was talking about the actual fighting of the show. I wonder, honestly, if they filmed a lot of that stuff because we should also say the pilot of this show is like a two-hour event. Like, it is one big episode that clearly they knew they had a built-in fan base. They were trying to sort of hype it up as like, oh, this is going to be more of what you're going to see. So the pilot does have a lot of that hand-to-hand stuff that is very typical of the Blade movies as well. But it's so choppily edited together that I didn't know like who was throwing punches, who was landing punches. There was a big fight scene in the beginning where Blade is like fending off like eight dudes in like a barn sort of setting. And I truly had no idea who was hitting who and how Blade (laughs) was even coming out of this thing at all. It was, again, sorry, maybe the show itself wasn't the worst edited show, but the fight scenes were so 
like music video-esque yeah. in their editing. It drove me crazy. Uh, Natalie and I were talking about how the fight scenes felt like fight scenes out of Charmed. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever really watched that, but sometimes it really felt like Charmed level punching or even a little bit of Buffy in there. Uh, but maybe that's too much of a compliment. I don't know. And then sometimes when there was a serious moment, like with Krista and her mom, that the music playing over it, Natalie was like, this is like seventh heaven music. What is going on? <sighs> and also Blade uh, barely used his sword for like a seven episode stretch. John, what's your second Dunzo? It's fun that you bring up Krista and her mom because my second Dunzo award is the Murderous Mama Award. And that goes to Krista's mom. So Krista has a sort of fraught relationship with her mom, especially, you know, once you get turned into a vampire, you kind of lose track of your family because you quote unquote, can't step into sunlight. So we find out that Krista's mom has leukemia and in order to keep her mom alive, Krista turns her mom in one of the weirdest, saddest like scenes where Krista gently bites her mom's wrist as she's laying on her deathbed in her house and then just like stands over her and smothers her with a pillow. And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then, of course, hijinks ensue when Krista's wacky vampiric mom gets out and she's got that thirst. She ends up killing her own brother, Krista's uncle. She also feasts on a few other people. And she's feasted a little bit too much because she can't, uh, the serum that's supposed to sort of counteract her um, thirst is not working. And Krista eventually has to kill her own mom. And that happens all within the course of about an episode and a half. It was a very jarring character development thing for Krista to deal with. Yeah, they end up, at an ambulance where Krista's mom, to, in her defense, the people in the ambulance were going to inject her with garlic, but Krista and Blade don't know that. They just find an ambulance with a bunch of blood and two dead bodies. And then they find Krista's mom who they like capture her, but then she's trying to eat Shen. And for like 20 minutes, Krista's like, no, don't kill my mom. We can fix her. And Blade's like, I'm going to kill your mom. And then she's like, no, I won't. And then at the end, she, the mom goes for Shen. Blade points the gun at Chris's mom. And Chris is like, no, wait, mom. And then she points the shotgun at Chris's mom. And the episode cuts out right as she's pulling the trigger and two barrels are right at her mom's face. Oh, man. It was a tough string of events for Chris's mom, who was perfectly content dying. And Krista had to go and ruin it all. Yeah. And then you go and spoil it all by turning me. I'm glad you got that musical theater minor as well. Oh, yeah. That's uh, American theater of Samoa. Not Southeast Missouri State. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, uh, I'm going to sing you a burning question, and I would love for you to answer it, please. Would you ever want to be a vampire? That's hot.
No, I, I don't think so. Uh, not to get too existential, but death uh, haunts me. It keeps me awake at night. Sometimes I feel this deep feeling inside of me that makes me stare forward and go like, whoa, forever is a long time. But at the same time, right? Being dead forever is a long, long time. But being alive forever is also a long, long time. Okay? Yeah. And I'm more afraid that I would just get bored. I feel like I wouldn't be able to really grasp the power of the situation. I would just be sort of this like meek little wet boy that was just kind of being tossed around for eternity on this planet. I would just try to like stay out of people's way and not really interfere with anyone. And the idea of like killing somebody to satiate my thirst, like no thanks. You know what else I would also be? I would probably be, you know that Twilight Zone episode where there's the guy who can't die and so he murders like his wife and then he thinks he's going to get the electric chair, but he ends up just uh, getting a life sentence. So he's supposed to spend his entire life in jail, even though he's immortal. That would be kind of, I'm not going to kill my wife, but I'm just saying like, I feel like I would get pinned for some crime that I would do. And I wouldn't be able to escape. If you're immortal, it'd be hard not to commit crime because you're like, well, you could probably just wait out some of that prison, you know, like how long is the prison going to be around for? hundred years. And then eventually they're going to figure out you're immortal. And uh, you could probably escape pretty easily just by, you know, using your vampire powers and sucking their blood. It just sounds exhausting. If I've learned anything from Shawshank Redemption, it's pretty easy. If they knew you were a vampire, I think they'd kill you. I don't think they'd let you just be in a jail cell forever. God, I hope. John, I've got a burning question for you. Burn away. What did you think about the overall story arcs of the 12 episodes? As a writer, as somebody looking at the structure of how everything went unfolded and broke down, do you think it has any merit? that's hot i thought it was a bit of a mess when it came to how it unfolded there is a central power struggle with marcus and the house of Cathan and the purebloods there is this idea of blade wanting this sort of struggle to play out so that more vampires just kill each other and he doesn't have to kill other people. There is the Krista double, triple agent side of things. I think if they focused on probably just the Blade side and used everything else as a B story, that it might have been a little bit more effective. You could have used... You you can still give your villain a sense of purpose and a drive and something that makes you understand why they're doing the things that they're doing without making it truly the driving force of the show that's named for somebody else. (laughs) And I think that is where the show falls the most flat. Like, and then you've got, again, your sort of monster of the week sort of things that are also fitting into this narrative. Uh, 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 Singular thing. They only did it once. But they also, again, you get the Bokeem Woodbine episode where he's killing Blade's family and loved ones. But he's in two episodes. 
Yeah, but they're spaced out. But I'm talking about the one episode where he's like focused on he like comes back and is killing people. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is also a standalone episode. But again, you have all this other stuff that's muddling it and it just it needed to be streamlined a little bit. What about you? Yeah, I think that if you took away the script and everything about it and you just had the bullet points of what happens, I think I would say it looks pretty good. But my biggest problem really, I think, from the overall story is that I felt like they introduced things and then it was like they were going to flush them out, but then they were just over. And then when it came to the Krista and the House of Cathan stuff, that was mostly a beginning to end story, which I could have used less of and wish they would have given Bo Keen Woodbine four episode story arc, not just a two one. Or again, pop in and out, make it a little bit more sort of tied together as opposed to sort of like balloons of paint chucked at an easel and hoping to see like how it lands, which I feel like that's what some of that stuff turned out to be. Isn't it crazy that this is written by the same guy who made The Dark Knight? Well, the story of The Dark Knight. Yeah, I mean, him and- He has a story by credit, yeah. Yeah, well, I was listening to an interview with him, and it's basically just him and Christopher Nolan worked on all the Batmans together, you know? Yeah. No, and I think he wrote the the three Blade movies. I liked the first two. Didn't feel like watching the third one. He directed the third one also. And he clearly has an attachment to the character, and he had this sort of mission to build out- these ideas that he had planted into the character, like with the movies and you need more, you need more editing and a little bit more of a focus on the main reason that we're here and understanding what the overall motivation is. But maybe that'll come up a little bit in our conversation about why the show is canceled right after this commercial break. And now, a word from our sponsors. Would you be surprised to learn that the two-hour season premiere got 2.5 million viewers? Which, for a cable show in 2006, I think is really good. I remember the show being hyped. I remember the show being, like, really hyped. I remember they had, like outdoor advertisements and commercials all the time. It was an event. Wow, really? I don't remember it at all. I do, yeah. Maybe that was just because I like I had my my finger on the pulse of the culture, if you know what I mean. But I just I do remember the launch of this, so the fact that it did well in its premiere does not surprise me. Okay. That much. Well would you be surprised to know that by the finale the viewership dropped to less than a million? Not even a little. <laughs> there was a lot going on here. And again, this isn't a time before like serialized storytelling became such a fixture in sort of TV storytelling. Mm -hmm. You're asking a lot of people to follow from the beginning of a show to the end of it, especially when they see Blade the series and they're like, oh, this is probably just like the adventures of Blade as opposed to this is one long Blade movie that Blade is barely in. Uh, so one of the producers said that the network didn't want to cancel it, but 
Spike TV was young and basically the price per episode, it was just too costly to make for them. Like, and they couldn't justify it with the numbers, but I get that it's an expensive show. The sets look cheap, but there's a lot about it that didn't scream cheap to me, you know? No, yeah. There was a a production design and it used some big cityscapes and obviously lots of action and gore and everything like that. And I mean, the CGI was very cheap. I think for 2006 on TV, it probably wasn't too bad. Ian, could you remember if there were multiple sound effects for when vampires burned up? Because it always made the exact same sound. Really? It was that exact same <sighs> every time that somebody burned up. Same with the uh, sound effect for any time that blades like clanked, like any time swords clanked. Uh-huh. It was always the ting, 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 ting. It, there was no like variation to it. I did ever. notice the same stabbing, gushing sound happening over yeah. and over again. I do think that they they were cutting corners in the face of a budget that was piling on top of itself. Yeah, and in an interview with Sticky Fingers, actually, he basically just chalked it up to every episode was just too expensive. Viewership uh, was far less than 50% by the end of it, and it was expensive to make. And also the fans, I think, were not crazy about it. Most people were upset that Krista was the main character Instead of Blade. One of the things I was thinking about a lot was this show is in 2006. Iron Man comes out in 2008, which effectively starts the reign of Marvel as a powerhouse in entertainment. We've got a Blade movie that is set to come out in 2024 with Mahershala Ali. Did you see that it was just postponed, though? Yeah. It was postponed to 2024. So there will be a movie, though, and Blade is supposed to fit into the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe in the not-too-distant future. I do wonder if they were just too early with too scatterbrained of an idea to make this work. This is very much a prototypical version of the Netflix Marvel model, which, you know, turned into Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Iron Fist and Luke Cage in terms of we're going to stick these heroes into a familiar setting, make it dark, make it gritty, center it on a villain that is bigger than thou. Make it gory and sexy because there was one full butt shot. Oh, yeah. And a lot of weird sensualness that is... Not quite explainable to me. No, that was the Spike TV of it, for sure. You could feel the greasy, like, fat fingers of Spike TV on a for lot sure. of the leeriness of the show. So I do wonder, do you think this show could have, like, been something had it come out post-2008? Yes, but I think what we should talk about first is, John, would you renew Ian, this is the worst show that we've done so far. No. I really did not like the show. Yeah. I really had a bad time watching the show. (laughs) It made me unhappy to be doing this with you. 
It was a very long 13 hours. And no, so so sorry. So I should clarify that. No, no, I don't think I would renew. I, it was really unpleasant for me. And the fact that it started off like cheesy and poorly made and then just got confusing and then grotesque, I was like, ah, oh, the evolution of it really did not sit well in my psyche. Confusing. In my soul. John, the science was sound. Ian, I don't have your degrees. I haven't had the time to sit with this for as long as you have. The hemoglobin, and John, the hemoglobin. What is hemoglobin? The what synapses is it? of the brain. That's not the same thing. The synapses, Ian. John. Ian, were your synapses firing? Would you renew? I would not renew, which I actually kind of went back and forth on because... If this was for the UPN or CW, I think it might actually be fine. I've never really watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I can imagine that some of this is like it, whether from the production value standpoint or maybe the fight sequences or something. Um, I don't have enough experience in campy fantasy type shows like that where I think I could give it maybe a bigger break if I were, but I think it could have been good. I think the stories could have been better. I didn't think the story was bad, but I didn't think it was good. I think it cut too many corners on too many things for me to give it more of the benefit of the doubt. I think if they would have cut corners on half of the things, I would say renew, but it's just the editing. It's just cheap. It's just cheaply made. Yeah, it was cheap. And it, again, you had something that worked. And I was thinking about what I liked about Blade 1 and 2 and what I didn't like about Blade the series. And I think, obviously, one of the biggest things was that Blade was in it. So that helped. But it also came down to the characterization of Blade. Blade in the movies, as Wesley Snipes plays him, is vulnerable and sensitive, but ultimately is just like having a good time. Blade here is not having fun. And there's that sense of like joy that I think is really missing from this show. Oh, there was no joy. I'm yeah. surprised to hear there's any in the movies. There is. There's like a bit of a like, let's see what happens. Ooh, I'm, you know... I'm Blade. I'm I'm bouncing around. I'm killing vampires. Uh, but I'm also one of them. Oh, isn't that rife with comedy? I guess it also helps that like the second one was directed by Guillermo del Toro. So, you know, it has that buoyancy that he brings to like all of his stuff. It's got that shape of water feel to it. Yeah. And it was like Blade 2 was pre-Hellboy too. So it was really like cool to see that version, like what turned into... Guillermo del Toro's style in terms of like production design and his sense of scope and like characters and all that fun stuff that he brings to everything. And this, it just felt like a guy who wanted his character to be deeper. Like you get Blade's backstory, you get all the, you know, background of Marcus and Krista, and it all just kind of muddled together into something that wasn't really anything. And that was the thing that 
made it such an unpleasant experience for me. There was no sense of self to it. It just kind of felt there and checking boxes. I I disagree with that only to me it felt just it just felt very CW. It felt very But charmed, CW has angel, characters. They whatever. have characters. That's the thing. It's character focused. It's not even mm-hmm. TBS. Characters are welcome there. It doesn't feel like that. It just They're very funny too. They are very funny, of course. There was nothing about the characters that I cared about except for the things that I felt like they were throwing at me to make me try to care about them. Oh yeah, I completely agree with that. It felt too late and it felt too little as well. Well, right, like Shen, they didn't even make you bother to know that his sister was killed by a vampire and that's why he's doing all this until like episode 11. Yeah. Until then it was just like, why are they friends? I don't know. And it felt a lot like uh, the exposition of if you're like connecting where it was like, oh, we used to work in retail together. That was the <laughs> loosest possible connection, but felt it, like more of a Brian from Kevin at work thing to me. <laughs> so it just didn't add up. It didn't work and it just wasn't fun. And it bummed me out to watch. Uh, See, I thought it was fun enough. I was like, I thought there was a little bit of a swamp thing to it where they gave me some violent, gory, squish thing that made me go, oh, whoa. But, I mean, it wasn't as good as uh, Swamp Thing at at that sort of thing. To go back to your question earlier of the two, would it be better, what, after 2008? Yeah. I think, yeah, it would have fit right in with the Daredevil Netflix shows. Yeah. And uh, they would have had more money and probably a little bit more time to. And patience to, again, like establish the characters. Because what you have here is it felt like a, a studio hand that was saying, we need more butts and we need more blood. But they didn't know how to incorporate that into the story that they were trying to tell. So it just all felt very haphazard. But then sometimes the censors were like, whoa, less blood. Or the prop department was like, hey, we're out of blood. And they're like, eh, just throw in a squish noise. <laughs> yeah, make some fun little sparks and uh, some decaying skeletons sometimes. Wow, the worst show. It really was. I really had an unpleasant time watching the show. Fine, we'll watch Bob Patterson twice for next week. I would. I would. I, that's the terrible thing. I've seen Bob Patterson twice because of how we've done this podcast and I would take either of those experiences over <laughs> this. That's how, wow. that's how jaded you've made wow. me. You know what? Screw you. Did you say that because Krista says screw you a lot? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh yeah, dude. She's just like, screw you. And Blade's like, screw me, screw you. But in all seriousness, thank you, Daniel, for the suggestion. It was the, it was the perfect type of show that we, would do for this it just and if you liked it we would love to hear it we would love to hear the discourse around it um ian where could people do that they can email us one and done pod at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter instagram hive social and mastodon at one and done tv We'll figure out if Hive or Mastodon take off, and uh, maybe we'll switch from Twitter to there. I don't know. It's a mess right now as of this recording. Um, Venmo me at Hamilton and uh, buy a Lodge Pan Scraper. 
hug your loved ones, bite your enemies. Until then, whoosh. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.